This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It is my great pleasure to interview Greg Keeley. He joins me from his home in Fredericton to talk about the history of spying in Canada based on his new book, Spying on Canadians, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Security Service, and the Origins of the Cold War. The book is a collection of essays on the history of security and spying in Canada based on many years of research. Greg Keeley is a prominent Canadian social historian, one of the founders of the journal Labour, Le Travail, and most recently a university administrator. Professor Emeritus at the University of New Brunswick in the Department of History, he is also the recipient of the Order of Canada in recognition of his academic and administrative contributions to this country. Greg, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Now, in a recent autobiographical article that I read in the Canadian Historical Review, you describe your family and your early years growing up in Toronto, in particular your Catholic education and your family's small-c conservative orientation. Can you tell us how the explosion of the 1960s changed your outlook, how it pushed you to the left of the political spectrum, and got you so interested in the history of the Cold War? A big question, that one. I did indeed reflect on some of that in the article you referred to in the CHR. My family background, my father was a foreman in a brewery in Toronto, and they were Irish Catholics. So I went to the normal parochial schools for grades 1 to 8 or kindergarten to 8, and then the St. Michael's College schools. But I hit St. Michael's College School in the early 60s, just when the Catholic Church itself was starting to go through some significant changes. And the Brazilian order that taught the college school at St. Michael's College, as well as the University of Toronto, had a lot of very well-educated seminarians and, and priests open to the, the kind of new teachings that came out of Vatican II and kind of pushed the church in a social and left direction, if you will. But then when I hit university, I got very caught up in the student movement and the anti-war movement. I'd been somewhat involved in the anti-nuclear movement, even in high school. But all those things kind of came together in the late 60s at the University of Toronto, really informed not just my politics, but started to inform my intellectual interests as well. So when it came to go to graduate school, which had not been a given until really I got to university, it was not sort of an aspiration or even in the realm of possibilities. When I did decide to do that, I wanted to study social history and the new labor history as it was then known and really wasn't being done in Canada. So I ended up going to the University of Rochester to work with Herbert Gutman, who was one of the leading American practitioners of new labor history and was a very good left-wing department with Eugene Genovese, who didn't end up on the left, and Christopher Lash, who probably moved a little into the center as well. But uh, the students were fantastic, and in some ways the students of the University of Rochester, uh, we all had an immense amount of influence on each other, and it was a particular moment. I was there from 1970 to 1972, and it was in the aftermath of the upheaval of the, of the late 60s. So those really were formative moments for, for me intellectually. Now, just tell us a little bit about the protests of the time, the Vietnam War. I understand you even spent some time in jail. Yes, I did. So I was very active initially in the Canadian Union of Students and the University of Toronto version of, of that and was elected to the Students' Administrative Council. The years following immediately on Bob Ray and Steve Langdon and illustrious crew. And I was involved in something called the Toronto Student Movement and in the demonstrations against the invasion of Cambodia by Nixon in 1970. There was a large demonstration at the American Consulate in Toronto on University Avenue that ended up in what I think 
we would describe in social history terms as a police riot these days. And yes, I actually got arrested and charged with and convicted of um, assault police and spent uh, 30 glorious days in August in the uh, Don Jail in the part that was uh, visited by Dickens in, in the 1840s. It wasn't wasn't very pleasant, uh, Toronto, August in a <laughs> an 1840s building. But yes, that, I mean, that was only one, of course, of many demonstrations and many actions that uh, took place in, in, in those years, many at the American consulate, not surprisingly. Right, and one month is a long time. I mean, that was a pretty heavy sentence. <laughs> well, I didn't play the usual game of waiting to go to go to trial because I was hoping to start graduate school that fall and not quite sure how all this was going to impact my ability to go to an American graduate school. Anyway, it turned out not not to impact it, but it did mean that we went to um, trial while um, all of this was uh, very um, heated in people's memories, and they were still making examples of people. I think there were over a couple of hundred people charged. I think only a few, a few actually were convicted, of which I was uh, one of the unfortunate. I see. So you had some uh, direct experience with what we call the security state. Well, it certainly, certainly uh, if I didn't have it, I think I had a file before that, but I certainly had one after that. <laughs> so... Uh, Let's go back to the earlier history, and I wanted to ask you, uh, can you describe the state of the security service in Canada before the Second World War? Sure, and that actually uh, has, has really been uh, the major focus of my work, although the work I'm doing now is on the post-war period. I might might mention in passing, Greg, that, that for listeners who, who really want to pursue this in more detail, the book that I uh, co-authored with Reg Whitaker and Andy Parnaby called The uh, Secret Service political policing in Canada from the Fenians to Fortress America, in other words, from the 1860s until the uh, until the present, would be a good place to start. But to specifically answer your question, the RCMP itself really was created in the aftermath during the labor revolt of the post-World War I period. The future of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police was very much in question. And to some degree, I think, the, and, and we argue in the book, that the labor revolt itself cemented the need for a national police force and really was one of the um, major factors in, in the uh, creation of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So the, the intelligence function was key to the RCMP from its inception, although by contemporary standards it was a, a very small operation. And some historians of the RCMP kind of argued against our thesis about the importance of the intelligence function, but I think it's pretty clear from the archival document just how crucial um, surveillance of labor on the left was from the inception. Um, uh, the RCMP, of course, came into being in 1920. They continued the file systems the Northwest Mounted Police initiated um, during the First World War, which was personal files on individual, mainly left-wingers, although um, by the time of the 30s, they, they took some interest in far-right-wingers as well, although all communists and socialists, careful or discerning uh, to make that distinction, was always the focus of their interest from the First World War until, until the decline of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Eastern Bloc. Now, one of the people that I've done research on in the past is a fellow by the name of Charles Gahan, and he was involved with the Bennett government from 1930 to 35 and some of the issues surrounding intelligence gathering and security service and uh, dealing with what he would have referred to as dissidents within Canada. Was there, was there a pretty major shift then in 1930? Uh, no, I'd argue that it was really consistent from the First World War on, and Gahan himself, um, although he had that function during the Bennett years, he actually goes back to the Borden years. Um, he was brought in by um, the Borden government in 19, 
1718 to look across the country and to investigate uh, what they referred to uh, as as Bolshevism, even though there were very limited ties to anything uh, happening in, in the emerging Soviet Union of the day. Um, but Cahan um, actually came up with a scheme that would have looked like the way the FBI emerged in the United States. He wanted a civilian intelligence agency. But for bureaucratic reasons, as far as I can see, that failed to find acceptance from the Borden government. And instead, they ended up, as I said earlier, creating the RCMP as the agency for that. But the 30s intensified things as struggles during the depression of the unemployed and emerging industrial workers movement certainly brought things to a head. But but it's consistent with what, what had gone on. And even in the 1920s, when, there, when the labor scene was more quiescent than it had been earlier and would be later, the RCMP intelligence function continued apace. And of course, the kind of show trial of the Communist Party leadership on the basis of the testimony of an RCMP agent who turned out to be a Maori named John Leopold happened in the early 30s as part of the Bennett uh, regime. Right. So describe how the the RCMP intelligence functions changed uh, right after the Second World War compared to what had existed before that time. Intensified during the Second World War as well because of the needs for military intelligence and for national security. Something of a professionalization that started during the Second World War, especially on the signals intelligence side, which didn't involve the Mounties, it involved the Department of National Defense and what eventually would emerge much later as, as CSE, as we, as we now know it. But it was happening on the human intelligence side, the RCMP side as well, because of the necessity of uh, tracking germ spies and trying to turn them and use them as double agents, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that brought them into, um, there had been some early discussions and, and work with British intelligence for the Second World War, really intensified that and especially brought them into contact with, with MI5, who not only had the mandate for, for national security in, in the United Kingdom, but for the whole of the Commonwealth um, and all the British colonies. So while six is often thought of as the overseas agency, five actually had responsibilities for Canada, Australia, New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera. So they had contact with five, and the Gazenko crisis late in 1945, moving into 1946, brought that home because the MI5 was all over that. It didn't know that until quite recently because uh, external affairs and the Privy Council office and the Mounties kept all that under a very tight cover, and the role that MI5 played is coming out now, not because of the Canadian documents, although we're starting to get more of those, but mainly because the British have been much more open about with the documents, um, and a lot of MI5 documents have been released, many of which have to do with Canada. Well, on this point, I was uh, very, very fascinated by uh, the idea and the term of Five Eyes. Can you describe what you mean by Five Eyes, and what was Canada's role as a junior member of the Five Eyes in the Cold War? So the Five Eyes grew out of Second World War signals intelligence. The main players, of course, were the United Kingdom and the United States, not surprisingly. In the United Kingdom's case, what's now GCHQ, the Signals Spy Agency in Britain, and the United States, what eventually became the National Security Agency, the NSA, which is, of course, the American equivalent. Australia, Canada, and New Zealand had a role in all of this, probably disproportionate to their importance otherwise in intelligence uh, matters other than their own national security services because of the geography and the limitations of the technology of the Second World War and immediate post-war period. Canada was important, obviously, because we were so close to the Soviet Union through the Arctic. Australia and New Zealand were important for their ability to cover the Pacific because we're talking about the interception of, uh, of, of course, telegraph signals 
and and, and then the successful deciphering. So the the five eyes the first after the war it wasn't clear exactly what would continue, um, and initially it was a British American operation, but they brought Canada, New Zealand, and Australia in for the reasons that I mentioned. So the five eyes are those five countries, each of which has their own versus CSE. Australia and New Zealand have equivalent bodies to the British and Americans that I've mentioned already, and continued very secretively. Uh, the existence of CSE wasn't publicly known until the 1970s in Canada, and similar. Uh, Things happened in the other countries, largely because they were so concerned to defend what laterally have become known as the Venona transcripts, a whole breaking of Soviet ciphers that uh, the Americans and the Brits accomplished after the war. But it took a number of years to actually decipher the documents, and the deciphering was always somewhat um, limited, and it, um, a, a lot of intuition had to be applied. But that was how uh, evidence was gathered. Uh, um, in terms of the Soviet spies uh, involved with the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb in the United States, and also a significant amount of spying in, in uh, Canberra and Sydney and Melbourne and Australia, equivalent uh, to the Gazenko uh, events in Canada. So that's what the Five Eyes were, and of course they're now totally transformed by the cyber world that we exist in, and of course they are much better known, and their very scary abilities are better known in the aftermath of the Snowden revelations about just how totally extensive the cyber spying uh, is by the five eyes, not just on our putative enemies, but on all of us. Well, let's focus on that point about the spying on all of us. I recently spent a fair amount of time reviewing the RCMP security file on Tommy Douglas, which I had to use uh, Freedom of Information rules to obtain. It took a bit of time, and I did get it. I was actually quite shocked at how extensive the file was. Now, Tommy Douglas, of course, was the Social Democratic Premier of Saskatchewan, and after that, the leader of the federal NDP. Uh, not exactly a person who, who worked in the Marxist left or Communist Party or anything like that. In fact, uh, for part of his life, he was actually quite hostile to the Communist Party, and yet he was spied on very extensively. Um, you know, you've described how the security service targeted the left, particularly socialists, uh, to the left of the, the New Democratic Party and the CCF before that. Uh, can you describe, uh, based upon certainly what I have seen in the file on Tommy Douglas, how extensive, how oppressive, and how effective were these domestic efforts at spying, particularly uh, from the Second World War on? Well, so extensive, oppressive, and effective. I think we need to separate those. Extensive, definitely, and extremely extensive. The coverage did not just involve the formal Communist Party, as the Tommy Douglas example uh, already suggests, but it also included all the groups that right-wingers thought of as fellow traveling uh, groups. So we're talking the peace movement. We're talking women's movement. We're talking all those groupings that may have had and undoubtedly did have some communist involvement, but weren't necessarily controlled by communists and did involve far more individuals than were uh, Communist Party members. And it also extended, very importantly, into all the ethnic groups in Canada. So the extensive organizations involving Ukrainians and Finns and Jews and just about every other ethnic group that, that had uh, organizations based, based on, their, on their national uh, uh, ethnicity 
all the way down to mandolin orchestras in, in uh, the smallest towns on the prairies. All of those came under surveillance, and most of them had um, not RCMP spies, the sense of RCMP agents undercover, but rather had informants in them. So if you go to the what's now in the archives, the historical records of the RCMP Security Service, which all have to be accessed using access to information legislation somewhat ridiculously, the extent of it is just overwhelming. Even Ukrainian communists that I've known and talked to um, with extensive experience who knew all about the RCMP Security Service because they were bumping up against them all the time were, were virtually blown away when they saw just how extensive all of this coverage was. You know, from children's groups through reading groups through poetry circles, etc. So extensive, definitely. Repressive, yes, because um, although they may have been not aware of how extensive it all was, they weren't aware of where that it was going on. And of course, especially in the Cold War period, it was actively used against people in terms of exposing, um, well, um, being fired from uh, public service jobs ever so quietly. Our, our, our McCarthyism was a, a kind of a quieter, more subtle, more British type, but it nevertheless led to the ending of lots of public service careers. And of course, anybody who was gay uh, was regarded as a security risk as well. So the RCMP Security Service was also going after uh, gay, gay men and lesbian women. And there was the ridiculous attempt at a kind of scientific way of discovering sexual preference by use of what the RCMP funded a Carleton psychology professor to create called the fruit machine. So the absurd parts of all of this, but it's also much more menacing. Loss of employment was one thing, but obviously people were, their political beliefs often cost them much, and also um, infringed on, their, on, on what we would think of as their political freedoms. The Communist Party of Canada, except for one brief period in, in the 30s and a brief period during the Second World War, was always a legal party that subject to this kind of treatment. And so how effective relative to security services? Well, the question of effective is the interesting one. So, I mean, what do we mean by effective? Um, did it stop Soviet spying? Uh, we know it didn't. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, uh, there's lots of evidence in, in Secret Service about how the RCMP Security Service was itself penetrated by people who simply were um, selling the Soviets information for money. Very high-ranking Security Service figure was doing that in the 1970s and 80s. So if the ostensible effort was to stop Soviet spying, effective? Not really. Might have been worse? Yes, probably. But if the intent, and I think that this would be my argument, if the intent was to uh, ensure the ongoing success of the capitalist system and to make sure that socialist opposition to that uh, came under um, very difficult grounds and, and hence made people fear to be active in those areas, especially especially in the 1950s, late 1940s and early and through the 1950s, then I think it was effective. It, it created a kind of a mentality of fear that limited the range of political uh, expression in, in, in this country and in other Western countries as well. Moving more into the present era, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service uh, replaced the RCMP intelligence function. And part of the reason was because of uh, some critique of the effectiveness of the RCMP. Can you describe when this occurred and why this occurred? So CSIS was born in 84, um, replacing the RCMP security service and intelligence functions are taken away from the RCMP and given to a civilian agency. 
some of the argument of pro and con had to do with the RCMP being a, a, a paramilitary police force um, that was ill-shaped to carry out these functions. Um, that the thought was a civilian uh, agency would be would be better, and I think there certainly was some truth in that, and that had been uh, had been uh, argued uh, back and forth from late 1950s on. But the real thing that brought down the RCMP Security Service was the disarray that followed the exposures of RCMP uh, Security Service wrongdoing that came with the McDonald Commission on the federal level and the Keb Commission on the provincial Quebec level in the late 70s. Uh, when the RCMP wrongdoing, um, the stealing of the Parti Québécois membership list, the burning of, uh, of barns in Gad the Gas Bay to do with, uh, with Quebec separatists, the uh, stealing of the Agent uh, Press, a bunch of overtly illegal actions by the RCMP Security Service that were outed, coinciding with what was happening in the United States with the Church Commission, Church Committee, expose about um, the FBI and CIA wrongdoing, um, there was a, a real turn against uh, covert agencies, uh, and the RCMP Security Service suffered that, that fate. The initial years of CSIS, uh, I think, were uh, there were some significant failures because of CSIS-RCMP conflict, um, not surprising institutional conflict as they tried to work out uh, modus vivendi between them and the area disaster being the obvious worst example. I think that CSIS initially uh, was a, an improvement on what had gone before, and in some ways, um, in terms of professionalism, may, may still be. But the gains that were made in the 80s and into the 90s dwindled in the aftermath of 9-11, and I, everything that's happened connected to the war terror has simply put more and more power into the hands of the security services of the Western world in general, but in, uh, in Canada in specific as well. And CSIS and, um, uh, and CSE, especially during the Krejcian and Martin years, but especially under the Harper government, were just given uh, untrammeled powers. Now, there were promises by the current Liberal government that they were going to bring things back under control. They have made some steps in that direction, but it's still pretty limited. One of the things that we've alluded to a couple of times, but I want to um, uh, make more um, specific here, is that one thing that came out of that milieu of the 70s and, and early 80s, the kind of reaction against the security state and, and all of the horrible things that it had done, um, was, of course, the notion of that we needed more transparent government. And hence, in the United States, you got freedom of information legislation, and, and in Canada, we got the access to information and privacy legislation. Much of the studying of the of RCMP Security Service would not have happened without that legislation. And yet that legislation, which was passed um, also in the early 80s, has been allowed to atrophy and uh, we're in, um, as a historian uh, like you, who's used the legislation, we're in much, much worse shape now than we were back then when we were first starting to do this work. Um, and the again, the current government promised as every opposition promises, that they're going to modernize the act and update it and make uh, make everything more transparent. And uh, among their broken election promises, I would rank this one as a really important one that hasn't received much attention yet. Uh, the current information commissioner, who was an effective advocate of, of reform and, and had a, a full slate of reform ready to go, um, is now moved on. The Liberals are dragging their feet. I suspect we're not going to see any significant reform until after the next election, or perhaps never. 
um, and this is yet another Trudeau broken election promise, which has significant importance in this realm because security services constantly ask us to trust them. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to protect you, given the restrictions on knowing about what they do now. The only way we know what they have done is historically, and we only can know that historically if we have access to the documentation. And that's what opened up the revelations and the stuff that I've been writing about for the last uh, 30 years. Um, and I fear that, as I say, that we're that, that ability is getting more truncated. And that that's a, a very steep price in democratic terms. We won't know what they've done. We won't be able to assess it unless there's some significant missteps. And we do know through the work of Dennis Molinaro, a young historian who works in this area, the National Archives Act also needs to be given more teeth because basically the Privy Council Office, External Affairs, and National Defense, and the thesis just are not turning documents over. The intelligence ends early to mid-1950s, and all that other documentation is still held in those departments, despite the fact that it should have gone to the archives a long time ago. I mean, it, the fact that it goes to the archives doesn't change the fact that you still have to use access to information legislation to get at it, but the fact that it's in the departments means that it's, it's veritably untouchable, um, and that's a huge problem as well. So I, I worry for all of us, but uh, uh, the historian's ability to be able to talk about these things is, again, I think, uh, increasingly jeopardized. Well, Greg, thank you so much for shining a light on one of the most difficult areas to understand and know, in part because of the lack of information and the lack of transparency, which you've spoken so eloquently to. We really appreciate you having this interview today. My guest today is Gregory Keeley. We talked about his recent book, Spying on Canadians, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Security Service, and the Origins of the Long Cold War, published by University of Toronto Press in 2017. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you all. Thank you.